Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come and worship you and look at your word. We thank you for each person that's here and ask you to bless this time as we look at your word and that your spirit will lead us in it. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Psalm 87, verse 1. A psalm or song for the sons of Korah. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God, Selah. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to them that know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This man was born there. And of Zion it shall be said, This and that man was born in her, and the highest himself shall establish her. The Lord shall count when he write up the people that this man was born there, Selah. As well as the singers, as, as the players on instruments shall be there, all my springs are in you. All right. We're not going to take long on this psalm because this psalm is really just a great praise for Israel, of Jerusalem. And it is an amazing thing when you go through the scriptures how important Jerusalem is to the Jewish people. And has always been, always will be, uh, one of the big problems that they have, even in the in Israel today, is that Jerusalem isn't the official capital of Israel, and they want it to be. What but is? What is? Tel Aviv. Oh yeah, yeah. Wow, really? Uh, but Jerusalem right now is a city that is divided and split up between Jewish, Christian, and Muslim factions. And so they really want to have Jerusalem as their capital. So here it is. It says, his foundation is the holy mountains. And, those, and whenever you read the term holy mountains, you're reading Jerusalem. So, and the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. And this is something we see all through the Old Testament. This, this praise of Jerusalem. And we, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. It says, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. And we think, we look at that, Isaiah talks a lot of times about Jerusalem. But think about this also is in Revelation 21-2, uh, it talks about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven uh, after the new heaven and earth are created. So we're going to see Jerusalem is going to play a part all throughout eternity and they talk about the the trade and everything going back and forth to Jerusalem and and all the nations coming to Jerusalem that's the millennial kingdom and into the new heaven and new earth Jerusalem plays a center part of all of God so there is something that God has said is special about Jerusalem what it all was about, I have no idea. <laughs> because it wasn't in Jerusalem until David uh, was conquering the land, and he said, whoever takes that city gets uh, tax-free benefits and, get, and got to uh, have all these special benefits. And at that time, it was just uh, an enemy city. And when he conquered it, it became David's city. And it was you know, in God's city. And the house of David ruled there, and the temple was built there, and, and it became a very special 
place and the center of everything for, for Israel and has been ever since. When Ezra, when Ezra came back, it was to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Nehemiah followed along and, and, and continued the building. And they built this second temple and Jesus died there. And Mount Moriah is there. The Golgotha is there. That's where Jesus dies and was resurrected. So it's a very special place in many, for many reasons. And much happens in Jerusalem as far as the scriptures are concerned. And much will happen all the way through all of the future time, all the way through eternity. Jerusalem is special to God. Why it's special? I have no idea, really, other than he says it. Here it says, you know, he loves Jerusalem or Mount Zion more than all the other dwellings of the Promised Land or Judah. It says, glorious things are spoken of you, O city. Then we get into this verse 4. I will make mention of Rahab and that for some reason, is a uh, name for Egypt. Oh, not a person? Oh. It's not the Rahab. It's not the, oh. the harlot Rahab they're talking about. All through here, and you'll see it in Isaiah and Jeremiah, when it talks about Rahab as a city or a place, it's talking about Egypt. And it says, I will make mention of Egypt. I will make mention of Babylon to them that know me. Behold, Philistia. Philistia is one of the major cities of the Philistines. And of Tyre and Ethiopia. This man was born there. So he's going, there's people born from these towns. <laughs> and then verse 5. And of Zion it shall be said, this and that man was born in her. The highest himself shall establish her. In other words, people get, he's bringing out in this first part, people are proud that they're from these towns. And these are key places, Egypt, Babylon, Tyre, uh, Philistia, uh, Ethiopia. These are very special places to be born from because they've held sway over that area. But he goes, but Mount Zion, it says this and that man, you know, if you were born from Jerusalem, especially as a Jew, it was the place to be born. And this is something that we see in even in Jesus' day, I mean, to be born in Jerusalem was a huge deal. Now, if you couldn't be born in Jerusalem, the second best was to be born in the Promised Land. That, but that was second best. You know, you ideally wanted to be born in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And this has always been their attitude. Their, their whole goal is to have a relationship with Jerusalem, even to this day, there's this idea that Jerusalem is special. Is Bethlehem in the Promised Land? It's in the Promised Land. Okay. Yeah, it's only 20 miles southeast, yeah. uh, uh, southwest of, uh, I thought so. yeah. of Jerusalem. But it's not Jerusalem. Right. It's still in the Promised yeah, Land. It's in the Promised Land. So here it is saying, And the highest himself shall establish her. God establishes Jerusalem. And, he's, and as we said, this is going to be even in the future because in the new heaven and earth, we have the new Jerusalem that comes down. Just a small city, you know, 1,500 1, miles square. <laughs> Ain't that going to be a sight watching that thing come down? Yeah. You, know, you figure something about 
about the size of half of the United States coming down from heaven. And it goes that far up in the sky, which obviously means there's something different about the new heaven and new earth that you can go 1,500 miles up into the sky. It's going to be on the new heaven and earth. which Because you couldn't have a 1,500 mile oh, high. Yeah. You can't have that kind of a, build, a building in this world. It's too high. Um, you're out of that. You're out of atmosphere. You know, just out of just so you, so you're kind of aware. Some people think it might be a, a a pyramid, which is no big deal. I mean, it might be a pyramid-shaped thing or not a pyramid shape or or square. It's but we do know that its base is 1,500 in all direction, and its height is 1,500. We look at that, but it says that God establishes Jerusalem. And he has established it. He put his he put his tabernacle. He allowed Solomon to put the tab, uh, the temple there, and the temple has stayed there. Jesus died there. I mean, all the things that happen. And from everybody who's ever been to Jerusalem, they say that Jerusalem is a beautiful city. I've never been there. I've just seen pictures of it, and it doesn't look as all that fantastic. But those who are, who have actually been there say that there's something special about that. Verse, verse 6, the Lord shall count when he writes up the people that this man was born there. And this count means reckon, reckon it's, that it's special, and that he writes up, puts, puts names down on a record, that they were born of that city. Now, and this, again, it's just that there is something special. I mean, even, even for the Israelites, to be born in Jerusalem is a great privilege that they consider. And like I say, second best back in and now, second best is to be born anywhere else. This verse brings out, this chapter brings out, God has centered everything on Jerusalem. All through history of the Jewish people, Jerusalem has become the center of all of it. It's where their government comes, it's where the temple comes. All at the end days, Everything happens in Jerusalem. The, the uh, two witnesses will be outside the rebuilt temple preaching for the, for the years that they get to preach, and then they'll be killed. And everything centers. The Antichrist will come in, and he will come into the temple and declare himself to be the Messiah and God. And that's when Israel will recognize that they've been lied to. And... Then everything really breaks loose and, and all the end time activities really come out. And But everything centers in Jerusalem. All of history. And it's kind of an amazing thing. There's, there are a lot of interesting little things that can be brought out. Languages, whether they write right to left or left to right, is in relationship to Jerusalem. If, they are, if the country is west of Jerusalem... Like all the European languages, they go they write right to uh, left to right like we do. All of the Asian countries to the east of them are right to left <laughs> and point toward Jerusalem. Wow. It's an amazing, amazing things out there. How Jerusalem and Israel is the center of everything for God, and it's a very very central thing in all of history, all of time. All of position is the place where Israel holds in this world. Why? Because God's people live there. And God's people live there and he's blessed them and he says that they are important to him. 
and he's not finished with them. He's going to come back to them. When Jesus died, the, the clock on the Daniel's 70 weeks stopped, and it's going to continue again once the church is raptured, and it goes right back to working with the Jews. But everything is centered on them. And this verse, this chapter here, just celebrates the importance of God's people. How important are they to him? More so than we really realize at times. But God is going to lift them up, and he's going to keep them. And he says the citizenship in Zion is important. And God's people are there, and it says that God has a special place for those that are born there. And then it says, then he just throws in as well as the singers and the players on instruments shall be there and all my springs that are in you. Now remember, this is a song for Korah. The Korites are the ones that are the musicians and the singers in the, in the temple. That's their job. If you're born of that tribe, you are, you are a singer or an instrument player. I, I would not do well in that tribe because I don't have talent, so that great a talent in that, in that area, so I'd be in trouble. <laughs> but it's one of those, if you're in that tribe, you are to be a singer or a musician in the, te in the temple. And he says just at the end, you know, by the way, guys, you are really special because you get to spend, not just be in Jerusalem, you get to spend your whole time in the tabernacle singing and making music for God. Can you imagine what that would be like just to be sitting in the temple all the time playing music and singing? That was your job. 24-7, 365 days a year in the tabernacle and in the temple playing the music, playing these songs that we're reading. And this is the idea. We need to keep in mind that God is the God of our salvation. Without him, we have nothing. We are without anything. With, we have nothing without him. We have no salvation. We have no joy. We have no life. It says, I, and we think about this, you know, we think about how we worship in our day. And if people get really loud at church, people look at pe others, each other funny. You know, why can't we in our churches get loud enough in our singing and loud enough in our shouts for God that people hear us around the town? But we need to be able to take a position out there that says, we have something that others should want. We have a, thing, a, a God that people should be desiring. And yet sometimes we try to seem to hide that from others. And I've, I've met people who just won't share God with, you know, won't share their salvation with others, won't share Jesus with others. And I want to know why. Why can't you go? I mean, does he excite you? Does he make you, does he, is he giving you a life that you want to share with others? And I've shared this many times with people. You can tell how, what's important to somebody when you start talking to them and find out what they spend time talking about. I love to talk about God. Just, it's just the way I am. I want to talk about God. And I used to play, you know, talk about sports and stuff, and I can still do to a, great, to a degree, but I like to talk about God. I like to share what is he doing in, in, in my life. How is he blessing? What is he doing? And it's not just because I'm a pastor. I've done it all my life to share with people, God, 
God is special. I, I've told you all, I used to love going into the restaurant and telling people, you know what God did yesterday or what he did over the last couple of days while I was away. And, you know, and all these non-Christian people that worked for me would look at me like I was a total nut talking about God blessing me. Because in their mind, I was just lucky. I was just you know, fortunate or whatever, the, whatever it was. But to attribute it to God made them wonder about me. Do we do those kind of things? When we're sharing with family, with, when we're sharing with others, are we telling them what God has done in our life? Because he should be that important to us. And here he's saying, God, incline your ears, bend down, listen to my cry. You know, listen to my loud cry. You know, he's asking God to lay, bend down and listen to a loud cry. When he does want us to draw attention to, to him when troubles and when blessings are happening. And I think that the more we spend time looking at what God is doing for us, the less we're going to spend time looking at the troubles that come to us and, and we won't notice them as much. Look for the good. Well, looking at the good, but that's why I love this song, I'm Count like Your it. Blessings. Like yeah. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. You start counting your blessings, and the rest of it seems to disappear. And when you start me measuring your blessings next to the, to the issues that God's sending your way, usually they don't measure up. But you know, even when we are sent hard times, do you realize that those are blessings also? Because they're teaching you to depend on God. They're teaching you to, to trust in God. How often do we look at our hard times and we just concentrate on how hard they are and how bad they are and how miserable we are instead of, God, what, it, what is it that you're working on teaching me? How, how can I learn from this? How can I be brought into a closer walk with you? Which is the whole purpose of all of our trials is to bring us into a closer walk with him. You know, we look at somebody like Abraham Abraham is going through all these hard times, and then at the very end of his life, what is he told to do? Take Isaac sacrifice. and go sacrifice him. Take Isaac, the promise, the promise, the one that I've told you of, that was going to be the answer to, to this population that you're supposed to have, and go out for him as a sacrifice. What a trial that had to have been to figure out for Abraham, do I obey God? Do I step out and, and offer this child who is the future? You know, we look at this. We look at somebody like Joseph, sold into slavery, not gonna be around his family for 13 years, actually promoted in 13, he's not gonna be around his family for 13, 20, 22 years. <laughs> from the time he leaves and is sent into captivity. Having seen a dream that he was going to be, that his brothers were going to bow down to him. You, know, you got to think that he, at this point, he's got to believe that God somehow lied to him. You know, he doesn't even plan to see his brothers again. He's a slave in Egypt. 22 years that he didn't see his brothers. Seven, the 13 of them was everything he did right. He kept getting... Get, things kept getting worse. 
And then finally, uh, after 13 years, he gets promoted. How, how easy would it have been for Joseph at any point to say, God, you've, just, you've lied to me all, all this time, and there's not, you know, those dreams were a lie. Uh, I'm just going to go live, the, you know, live, live like the world because you haven't been faithful to me. But you see what he did is when he was in Potiphar's house, he was an administrator and he was a person who could control things and he, and, and he looked good to Potiphar and he was raised up and then to be accused of a, a rape you know, that he didn't commit and be sent to jail. Right there would have been enough to just, you know, for most people to say, well, I give up God. I'm not, you know, I did what was right and look what happened to me. And he goes into prison and administers stuff and he does whatever it is that makes him look good to the jailer and he puts him in charge of the other prisoners. And eventually, you know, he, he gives the interpretation to the butler and the, and the baker and, and, and the butler forgets him. Sure. You know, forgets him until just the right time, but he does not know all of this stuff. All he knows is he's languishing in the prison. Gets promoted and still doesn't ever plan to see his family because now he's number two in Egypt. You know, when's he ever gonna get back to, to see his family? Goes seven years through the, through the years of plenty. So he's 37 years old. He doesn't get to see his family again until he's 39 years old and they first come back to see him. And how do we know that? Because he tells his brothers there's still five more years of famine and bring dad back. He never knows that all this stuff's going to happen, but he stays faithful to God. How old was he? 30 what? He was 39 when his brothers came back. So he stayed faithful. Most of us probably wouldn't have stayed faithful. We, we read stories like, Annie's favorite people, the, the Ten Boom family that helped out the Jews and then ended up going to prison. Most of them died and they stayed faithful to God. It's not always easy to stay faithful to God when hard things are happening. But it's important for us to stay faithful. The more we trust God, the easier it is to stay faithful with Him. It's hard sometimes. But if we remember that God is faithful, that he is somebody we can depend on, we can go through hard times. Mm -hmm. It all depends on what is our mindset coming into these issues. If we doubt God and bad things happen, then we're going to have a real hard time getting through it. If we are fully confident that God is true, all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God, doesn't mean that we're not going to question the bad things that happen to us at times, but we're going to be able to say, you know, God, I'm holding on to the bottom of this rope. All I have is that you've promised that it will be for good. And sometimes that's all you can do is hold on tight to that bottom rung of that rope and say, God, I don't understand, but I trust you. And when you come to the place where you say, I'm going to trust God, he gives that deliverance to you. He gives the peace. I love the fact that God is in complete control. Nothing happens that he wasn't aware of. Nothing happens that he doesn't allow. Nothing happens that isn't part of his plan. And it's all going to be for his good in the end time when it's done. Can you explain what the 
homosexuality. Just God, God, let's go on. Because of free will. God allows all kinds of things to happen by free will. And this is the, when people say, well, if God is all-powerful, can't, can't he stop bad things from happening? Of course he could stop bad things from happening. All he's got to do is take our free will away from us and make us robots. The only problem is nobody really wants him to take away our free will and make us robots. So when it comes down to the bottom line, they don't want us the people who say, can't God get rid of all the bad things, they really don't want that to happen mm -hmm. because they don't want to give up their free will. They want to be able to do what they want to do. Whether it hurts somebody or not, doesn't matter to them. But God says, okay, fine. You've got the freedom to do something. You've got the freedom to do bad. Once we have bad, then we have God's judgment upon bad, and sometimes that hurts the innocent and that is sad it's harsh but it's part of the free will that's out there they chose it. because they choose to do wrong and God's got to punish wrong during the revelation period there are going to be many people that we would probably call innocent okay that aren't totally evil now you've got to notice that I said that we call innocent because nobody in this world innocent. is innocent. Mm -hmm. There are degrees of innocency. You know, there are some people who haven't done as much as others. But the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. So we are born sinners. We deserve punishment from the moment we're born. And this is hard for people. Even that little child that looks so innocent is a sinner. And it's pretty amazing when you really think about it. Babies know how to get their way. Okay, now are they cognizant of all of what they're doing? No, but they know how to get their way. If they scream loud enough, long enough, they're going to get held. They're going to get fed. They're going to have their diapers changed, whatever, whatever it is. But they know instinctively how to get their way. And sometimes you have to train parents to quit giving in to this baby every, mo every time they, they whimper. That's right, let them cry it out. Let them cry a little bit. You know, don't ignore them. I mean, if they're wet, you change them. If they're hungry, you feed them. But if you respond to every moment of what they did, then your kid has got you trained real well. Okay? And so there is no innocent person in this world. So when people say, well, how, why do the innocent suffer or the good suffer? It's because they're starting from the wrong premise in the first place. God says that we all deserve punishment. Now, yes, there are people who deserve it much more than others. They're, you know, they're real, you know, and it's hard when they don't seem to be punished as much as other people. But God knows what he's doing is he's trying to give them enough rope to hang themselves and show that they are evil and, 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 de and deserve this punishment. And But we as Christians need to keep in mind the biblical standard is we're all sinners. They're, we all deserve any punishment. Anything God decides to put on us, we deserve. Because we've got to see ourselves from his point of view. That means sometimes people get into homosexuality, fornication, drunkenness, 
uh, drug use, you know, all the other things that are out there. And sometimes it seems like, God, why aren't you judging these people? And we see this all through Psalms. You know, you know, God, what's going on? You know, here we are following you and we get judged. These people seem to be doing everything wrong and yet they seem to be blessed. And this is why we bring out often, God does not, has not closed the books yet. The books aren't fully closed until they stand at the white throne judgment. And they may have had a, a fairly, what we think of as a decent life. But you know, one thing about this, sometimes we look at these people and we think they've got all these blessings and they're miserable. They're not happy. And even if they are happy, they're not really joyful usually. You can have done terrible sins in the past, like myself, I have mm -hmm. terrible things. And you can still change your life and come to God, right? Yes. And God recognizes that and you're not going to get punished for the evil you did before. Confess, repent. <laughs> Confession and, the, and Jesus Christ. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's under the blood and forgiven. So that's all in the past. Yes. It's under, it's under the blood. Yes. But he remembers all your past, doesn't he? No. When it's under the blood, it is not remembered. When we confess our sins and we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all unrighteousness. He puts the sin under the blood, and he does not remember that, that sin. So you think I'm still going to heaven? Well, as long as you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to heaven. Well, I have. You know yeah. that. Then you'll go to heaven. Okay. This is, this is a critical thing for us to understand. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are clothed in Christ. God declares us perfect and accepts us as his child. Now, can there be consequences for sins that you've done? Yes. yes, there can be consequences for what you do wrong. But you are forgiven. But the consequences aren't God's judgment. That is just the sowing and reaping that goes on. If you sow bad seed, you reap the reward. If somebody goes out and commits fornication, and the result of it is that they end up with a child out of that that union that is the consequence for the fornication act bad behavior. the bad behavior it's not that god judge them it's just the consequence now in our day and age quite often we then choose the, the person will then choose to abort the child which has a whole another set of consequences that nobody ever talks about because the woman eventually and oftentimes the man as well ends up with psychological disorders, especially when they see kids the age that their child would have been as they were growing. And they start ending up with all kinds of psychological problems because they've had, a, have had this murder committed, you know, legalized or whatever, but it's legalized murder. And there's consequences for that. When somebody steals, there's consequences, whether you're caught or not, there's consequences for the theft. God has sowing and reaping in place. When you sin, there will be consequences. Now, can God supernaturally block the consequences? Yes. Does he most of the time? No. Most of the time, you're going to suffer the consequences, but he can supernaturally intervene. Any, anything that you do, when you confess your sin, it's under the blood. 
And for that matter, even when you're in Christ, God has declared you perfect. In the courts of heaven, when we are saved, God justifies us. He declares us perfect. As far as he's concerned, we're perfect. We still have the sowing and reaping that goes on. Why are we perfect? Simply because of the blood of Christ. On the cross, Jesus said, Telestai, it is finished, which literally means it is paid for. It was the bottom of a bill when, they, when you paid your last payment on a bill to a, to a vendor or a, or a, a uh, artisan. They would put Telestai, paid in full. It was yours now. It didn't belong to them anymore because you had finished the payments. Jesus on the cross finished the payment for sin completely. Completely paid for sin. He was the he was the lamb for the sacrifice for the sin offering where the hands were placed on the scapegoat and the, the sins were placed upon that lamb and that lamb was led out into the wilderness. Jesus was the scapegoat. He went to the be baptized of John. He was baptized by John. This Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness with the sins of the world upon him where Satan was able to attack him for 40 days. And he came back to come to the cross and be the Passover in the, in the sin offering so that death would pass over us and he completes the payment. This is one of the reasons why we share. When people stand at the white throne judgment, which is the place where the lost will stand, there's one question asked of them. What did you do with the son? And if you're standing at the white throne judgment, you rejected him. And they're going to be shown every time they rejected the son and be sent to hell. Not because of even their sin. They're going to go there because there's one unforgivable act, and that's to reject Jesus Christ. That's going to send them to hell. He paid for sin. Now, in hell, there may be the price of you know, paying for your sin at that. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. There's a lot of people that argue that one. I believe that they're just going to hell because they rejected Jesus Christ who gave them the forgiveness of their sin. We've got to understand this. So it's, no matter, until we die, no matter how many times we may have sinned until we die, it's forgiven as long as we repent. We repent. Now, when we repent, that can block some of the consequences because, he's, because we're his child and he sometimes will block it. But remember, every sin, when Jesus, every sin that we are ever going to commit when Jesus died was in the future. Okay, and this is a dangerous place because a lot of Christians think this way. Everything I did before I was saved is under the blood and gone, and I've got to somehow pay for everything afterwards. No, it is still in the future. When Jesus died, it was still in the future. He paid for sin. Yeah, because we weren't even born. We weren't born. We weren't born, and he knew the sins that he was dying for, and he took all sin upon him on that cross. And does, isn't it true that he knows what sins that we're going to be doing later on? Still? Yes. 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 So, yeah. When he, was on, when he hung on the cross and became sin, God placed all sin on him. 
And this goes back to the sin offering for the God is placed in the Jews for for the Day of Atonement. When they prayed over that lamb, they placed their hands on the lamb, and the lamb took all the sins of Israel upon himself. Jesus died not just for Israel, he died for the world and took all sin, all the past sin before him, all the future sin after him, he took all the sin upon his body. You want to talk about being, when God turned his back, he turned his back on his son because he was the uh, epitome of sin. Every sin that had ever been committed was on Jesus at that moment when the father had to turn his back on his son. But is he more favored for the Jews because, like you said, they are their special people? Not in this issue. Not in this issue. When Jesus died as the sin offering, he took all sin. And that's what I'm saying. When we stand before Jesus as Christians, we stand at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. Even there, he's not bringing up our sins. He's taken all the works that we have done and throws them in the fire to see how, what he can reward us for. How many good works we've done. And it's the works, not even the works that we have done, it's the works that we have allowed him to do through us. Because again, our flesh will burn. It's going to be what he has done through us and we'll be rewarded for what he's done. Those who stand at the white throne judgment are not going to be, he's not going to take Hitler up there and say, okay, you killed three million, you know, you know all these, these millions and millions of Jews and, and gypsies and you destroyed your, this country. He's going to be, what did you do with Jesus? And if he accepted Jesus, so. If he accepted Jesus, which I don't think he did, but yeah, if he did, if he did, then he's at the bema seat. Yes. Getting no rewards. So this we've got to keep in mind. That doesn't mean, like Paul said, it doesn't mean that we go out and sin so that grace, grace abounds. Because if he is indwelling us, we're going to want to be more and more like him. Well, it's just the opposite. You try not to sin, but then you do, and then you well, because when he indwells us, he crucifies our flesh. He changes who we are to be more like him, and we become more and more like him, not because of anything I do, but because he's indwelling me. He comes out. He pours out of me. He touches people's lives because of how much he's indwelling us. And this is the word we talk about to be filled with is to be pleroma, to be filled so full that it's overflowing. It's splashing out. Uh, every step we take is like splash, splash. God's jumping out all over the place because he so fills us that as we step forward, he just splashes out all over the place to people. So this is what happens to us as Christians. We accept Jesus Christ. He comes in. He clothes us with his righteousness. Christ, God the Father, declares us perfect. And then he starts making us perfect by so filling us with the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit crucifies the flesh. The flesh gets changed. And this, this is what we talked about, being baptized in the Spirit. He plunges our flesh into the Spirit. And it's like the pickles that we talked about. You put the vegetables yeah. in the vinegar. And the vinegar does nothing to become a pickle. It just stays in the vinegar. Our flesh is dumped into the Spirit. And it stays there, 
and it's basically pickled or, or changed into a spiritual entity. So that our flesh starts dying away and we become more and more spiritual with every day, not because we're trying to become spiritual, but because we are submerged into the Holy Spirit and He is changing who we are to be more like Him, to be more like the Son, so that when we are glorified, it's just a small step. Because we have been saved and changed. We are a new creation. New, yeah, yeah. Not we are a new spiritual creation. The flesh has been killed. We are being changed, and we spend our life being changed into who God says we are. This is the power of the cross. This is the power of the new life. Mm -hmm. That it is finished. Okay, we have to understand the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's over. So like, like when, like I have changed a lot, and when I do to be good, it's really not me. It's God that's working in me yes. because I have opened up and let go of the let go of the old and. Correct. Yeah. When you look back over your life and you go, like, I used to love doing this and I'm not even tempted to do this anymore. Yeah. Not because I have disciplined my flesh, but because God has crucified that area. He has made me a new spiritual person who doesn't want to do the thing that I used to love to do. I mean, just little things like I used to always listen to rock and roll. Now mm -hmm. I don't listen to that. I felt guilty. I listened to Christian music. Yeah. We just, you know, and, and this is the change that he is doing. Now, if you're fighting real hard, and this is why when I hear people say, well, I'm trying to live the Christian life, my answer is always the same. Quit trying and be crucified. And like I say, it's, it's really in the way it's easy. Yes. Jesus on the cross said it was finished. When we get saved, it is finished. It really is finished. We don't know that it's finished. We don't live like it's finished, but it is finished. And when we walk in the power of the finished work that God has declared as perfect, that he is the one that's changing us, that we don't have to strive to be good because it's him, we have great power in the way we walk. We have great power in our Christianity because it's him and no longer us. All we've got to do is let him crucify our flesh, he, the spirit, be submerged in the spirit, be changed, and we, we start walking in the power of that. So, and we don't walk in the condemnation because in Romans 8 it says, there is now therefore no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Because he finished the work, we're in him. The father looks down at him, sees his son because we're clothed in Jesus. There's no condemnation when we do wrong because it's under the blood. It's forgotten because when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son that we're clothed in. When we stand before him in the spiritual world, he will look upon us and see his son. We talked about it in Ephesians that the church is his bride. They have become one with him. Romans 8, what? 8? 8, 1. 8, 1, okay. Ephesians that he won't that we won't be tempted more than we can handle and he'll give us a Galatians, way out. yeah. Corinthians 10:13. So all of this stuff comes down to our power, our grace, the change, the forgiveness is all because of what Jesus did on the cross. And all the sacrifices that we spent Wednesdays looking at for a long time are all who Jesus did and he fulfilled them 
on the cross. He lived them for the four, four years that he ministered. He was the Passover lamb that brought, that, that passes, the death angel passes over because of the blood on the doorpost that says, these people deserve punishment. They deserve to have the firstborn dead, but because the blood has been shed, they're not going to have it happen. The beauty of all of this is the finished work of Christ. He died on the cross. He finished. He paid it all. We look at this. And we, we, if you remember, we talked about he is the propitiation mm -hmm. for sin. And propitiation means that all of God's wrath was paid for by the death of Jesus. God's wrath for the world was paid for by Jesus. They have the opportunity for mercy and grace and his forgiveness. And they're going to reject it. Many will reject it. And Jesus said, many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And you look at what they did and they have a long list of works. Good works. They visited the poor. They fed the hungry. They clothed the hungry. They, you know, they visited the people in the, in the jails and the prisons and they... And they went to the, visited in the hospital, and God's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they didn't know him. They hadn't accepted his finished work to be forgiven. For us as Christians, it's, you know, when we teach grace, when we teach the finished work, it's not that we go out and we go out and you know, say, okay, I'm forgiven, I can go do all the sin I want. You know, yes, you could, but no, you're not. If you know him, you're not going to go out and sin thinking that you can just go out and sin. Because if you know him, you're going to be so convicted for going out and sinning that you can't sin. Yes, you could because you're forgiven, but you won't because of your relationship with him. You know, and it's a, you're out there serving him because he is changing who you are. You don't want to offend him. It's the same thing that once you get married, the last thing you want to do if you're truly in love with the person that you're married to is go out and make them mad at you or, or go try to find somebody else to replace them because you love them. And if you love them, you're not going to go out and hurt them. So this is where we are with God. We love him so much and he's filled us. He's changing who we are and we can't just go out and sin and, and without that conviction of sin and, and that it's hurting him. And then we, when we do sin and hurt him, we come back and we, we come back to him and we just say, God, I am so sorry I did this. I, I, I repent. I'm not going to do it again. Please forgive me. He forgives us. Sometimes blocks the consequences. Sometimes doesn't block the consequences. But we're able to come back into fellowship with him. And that forgiveness of, of sin is for us to be brought back into fellowship. Not that he threw us away because of our sin. It allows us to become back into fellowship with him because we've admitted that we've done wrong. He cleanses our conscience and we can come before him. Because if you've ever been in a place where you've sinned and you haven't confessed... You're not, you haven't lost your salvation, but do you feel like getting into the Bible? Do you feel like being around God's people? No, you're not in fellowship with God, and you're feeling guilty for what you've done. So you've got to go to 1 John 1, 9 and confess your sins. And then when you confess it and put it out in the open with God, then you start wanting to draw close to him. You want to get back in the Bible. You want to draw close to his people. 
And I've seen it over and over again where somebody starts getting into sin and just won't confess. And they start pulling okay, away. Like I forget not on purpose, but I do forget like I said, God, I please forgive if I've done any sin in your eyes because I even like a, a thought, you know, because that's really sin too, but I don't remember I might have thought. David had a prayer just about that. Yeah. Well, like I've shared with you before, I drop the if I have sinned and just, just say I have yeah, sinned. Yeah, I don't uh, say if, no, I do. But when we confess, I mean, you will know if you've done something that's bad enough to make you feel guilty. Well, no, then I would yes. say that every night just to make sure that but, if I, not, okay, there, that if again, okay. There are sins that we do that we're not aware of and we... Well, that's what I mean. And you can confess those ones as well and that's going to be good. But just remember, we're looking to, God is already holding us. He doesn't, you know, the, can't remember where it's at, but God talks about his arms are underneath us. This says, when you fall, his arms are underneath you. We've, it was one of the Psalms we've already covered. But he has got his arms right there. He's not even going to let us fall when we sin. He doesn't let us fall completely because he loves us that much. He's not, he's not going to say, well, I'm going to wait till you hit the bottom of the barrel and then I'll pick you back up and make you. And the great news is he doesn't put us down at the bottom of the starting rung of the ladder. He says, okay, you fell from the fifth rung. I'm going to put you back up on the fifth rung because he loves us enough. And it's him that is the one that gives us the rewards anyway. So he returns us back to where it is. He tells us that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. When we fail... He doesn't say, oh, sorry, you were, you, were, you were supposed to be a pastor. You failed. You can't be a pastor anymore. You, know, you were to be an evangelist. Sorry, you failed. You can't be an you know, That's not his heart toward us. His heart toward us is, I'm going to bring you right back. I'm going to help you get moving with where you're supposed to be. How many times, if you read any of these biographies of people where they make bad decisions, they make bad decisions, they make bad decisions, and then all of a sudden... You know, they'll talk about how they were called to do it, and then they turn to God completely, and God says, okay, here you go. Here, here's, your, here's your calling. Here's your, here's your position. God brings us out because it is all him. And we've got to remember everything that we do for him is because of him. You know, if I think I'm doing the stuff, I'm deceiving myself, or I'm doing it for the wrong reasons and the benefits aren't going to be there because it's my flesh. Right. It's got to be God. It's got to be his finished work. It's got to be the new spirit. It's got to be the Holy Spirit. And he works through us so that he can, they can move us no matter how bad we've been. He delivers us. And the greatest news is even when we totally misbehave and we really mess up our life, he redeems the time. He get, he gets rid of the, the, what the canker worm has destroyed and he redeems it and he renews it and oftentimes he will use it to be able to witness and, and talk to other people. What God can do is amazing. How he can make things happen is an amazing thing because he can totally change our life. We walk, we walk away from him for 20 years and he, all of a sudden he says, right here you go. You do a Jacob and you run, you, you run away from everything and you go away for, what is it, 20 years of a Jacob goes away and God says, okay, fine, I'm, I'm still blessing you, I'm going to bring you back. 
And you still get the promise of Abraham. You still get the promise of Abraham, even though you've ran away for 20 years and you didn't stay in the promised land like you're supposed to. You ran away and you know you grab you got yourself a couple of wives, you've been mistreated by Laban and, and had to battle with Laban for 20 years. But I'm still gonna use you. This is the blessing that we have out there because it's all God. It's his finished work. It's all grace. No matter what we do, it's all grace. No matter how bad a job we do with our life, how bad a job we do with our kids, God can redeem it all because it's him. We learn and we share with our kids and eventually God brings them, can bring them back. Even if we did a terrible job with them, you know, he can bring them back because he is grace. And he says, I am the God that has finished the work. And we put things in his hands. And the more we just rest in Christ, the more we're going to see him do. Does that mean by resting in him that I do nothing? No, I read my Bible, I pray. When, when he gives me the opportunity, I open my mouth and he fills it with words. That's what he told the disciples. Don't worry about what you will say when you go before the magistrates. The Spirit will tell you what to say. How many times have you been in a position where you didn't know what to say and you just said, God, help me, and the next thing you know, the Spirit's talking through you. And you're listening to yourself speak and wondering where these words are coming from. You're dealing with your kids and all of a sudden you go, God, I need to write words for them. And all of a sudden it's the Holy Spirit talking to them and not you. All right. We're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your finished work. Help us to always depend on that and to know that you have filled our hearts. You have filled our lives. That it is all you and it is not us. Help us to understand that in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen.